from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. What bothers me so much is this belief that addiction is an incurable disease. Nothing drives me so crazy. Yeah, I did. I went undercover in a pair of fentanyl operations. Addiction is, is tricky. It's like asking people to stick to a diet when there is junk food everywhere. And one thing we know is that when people go to prison, their drug problems tend not to get better. They tend to get, to get worse. And we should be providing drug treatment in prison, but particularly we shouldn't be sending you know, non-violent drug criminals to prison in the first place. I'm Sarah Fetsky. At least 100,000 Americans died from drug overdoses between April of 2020 and April of 2021. That's a record high number. And at least 2,000 of those deaths happened here in Missouri. That's a 14% increase from the prior year. So what's driving this epidemic? And what are people doing to stop it here in St. Louis? My guests today have some answers. Ben Westoff is the author of Fentanyl, Inc., How Rogue Chemists Are Creating the Deadliest Wave of the Opioid Epidemic. He's an acclaimed journalist, and he's based right here in St. Louis. Ben, welcome. Thanks for having me, Sarah. And we're also joined today by Percy Menzies. He's founder and president of Assisted Recovery Centers of America, also known as ARCA. That's a treatment organization based right here in St. Louis. Percy, welcome. Thank you for inviting me, Sarah. So 100,000 overdoses last year alone. Percy, were you surprised when you heard that number? No, because we see deaths all over. And I have, I even, I'm afraid that that may be a low figure because not every death goes through a toxicological examination. So that figure may be even higher. I think that's a good point. When people are expressing these numbers, they always phrase it in terms of at least this many. There could be so many more out there. What are you seeing on the ground when it comes to people dealing with drug addiction these days? Has the pandemic caused an increase in the number of people grappling with this? Yeah, what the pandemic did was increase the access to drugs and there was very little supervision in the sense there were no cops on the street. So the drug dealers were able to just you know, have a heyday. And the big factor that has, that has thrown everything out of whack is fentanyl. Nobody expected this to hit us so badly. So fentanyl, Ben, this brings us to you. Your book Fentanyl Inc. came out just over two years ago. Um, you kind of saw this coming. What makes fentanyl such a huge problem in a country that has had many different drugs we've experimented with over the decades? This is the third wave of the opioid epidemic following the pain pills like OxyContin and then heroin. But now you can't find pure heroin almost anywhere in the country. It's all cut with fentanyl because fentanyl is so cheap, it's made synthetically in a lab, and drug, de drug dealers adulterate not just heroin, but meth, cocaine, and in particular, prescription pills. So now people are buying pills on the street, they look just like a Xanax, just like a Percocet, 
but they actually contain fentanyl, which is much, much stronger and kills people instantly. And so people might think, oh, I'm taking this this drug. I'm just doing it without a prescription. This is going to be totally safe. It ends up being a much different pill just for this little bit of fentanyl that it's been cut with. That's right. And it's almost impossible to mix fentanyl in these pill concoctions because only two grains of rice worth of fentanyl can kill you. And so some pills might be totally safe, while the exact same pill, one that looks exactly the same, could kill you. So, Percy, is this something you're seeing with the people that come to you for treatment, that they're accidentally taking fentanyl, or are there people who are choosing to take fentanyl? No, what is happening is that it's rare for us to find a urine specimen that is not contaminated with fentanyl. Mm. Everything they use, just like Ben said, whether it is uh, the fake Xanax pills, oxycodone, and all that, that contains fentanyl. So fentanyl has become the common denominator. And this is causing, you know, complete chaos in the field. And we do not know how to react to it. Although we have got some good weapons and tools, we'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. But that's the challenge we face, that we never expected that a third wave would be so devastating. So we hear about people overdosing on fentanyl. If somebody is, is, if their drugs are cut with fentanyl or there is some fentanyl in their bloodstream, but they're not yet at the point where it's killing them, is that complicating things as far as treatment goes and, and the course of their addiction? Yeah, because it's, it's virtually impossible to mix a drug in which the dose is measured in what is called micrograms. It is such a small dose. When they mix it, they don't realize, you know, one batch may be, may be mixed with a pretty high amount of fentanyl that can kill people. Others, they don't. So if they get a, do they get a batch that is not as contaminated, they feel, oh, I can do this. So that's because the, the, the disorder is so narcissistic, people are getting away with it. Okay. So, Ben, I think this bears stepping back a minute. We've talked about how all this fentanyl is here, and the dealers took advantage of the pandemic to increase um, how many people they're serving. Where is all this fentanyl coming from? Almost all the fentanyl that's used illicitly is made in China. Now, fentanyl is also a hospital drug, and that is a very important pain reliever, and it's used safely every day. But the illicit fentanyl starts in China, where it's made in labs, and it's sold extremely cheaply, maybe $2,000 a kilogram. And the Mexican cartels either buy the finished fentanyl or the ingredients known as precursors. And then it's finished in, fent finished in Mexico and sent north of the border. So it's trafficked through the same channels that heroin, meth, cocaine, all of that is trafficked through the cartels. And so this is something where they're able to use these traditional channels, but they're actually getting it rather than getting it from poppies or getting it from cocoa leaves. They're getting it from these, these giant factories over in China. You actually visited one of these. Yeah, I did. I went undercover in a pair of fentanyl operations, including one in Wuhan. <laughs> this was before the pandemic. And so when the pandemic dawned, it really shut down the fentanyl very briefly. But, but yeah, the, it's made in these factories. Um, the, it's, it's packaged up by the cartels. But the problem is that these drugs are adulterated every step of the way. Mm. So when it gets to the buyer, the street dealer who sold that person the drug doesn't even know himself what's in it, right? Mm. Because the people, every step in the food chain, they're adulterating it more to increase their profits. So no one knows what they're getting.
So this is a very discouraging situation. How does it change the supply we have of illicit drugs in this country to have this infusion of fentanyl starting in these Chinese factories? We have never encountered this before because every major drug epidemic was successfully ended when the supply was cut off. The first heroin epidemic of the 70s, the heroin was coming in from France. We cut the supply off. So we surprised, and many of you have seen the thriller called The French Connection. This time around, we don't have any strategy to cut or curtail the supply. And we are using battle maps or road maps that were developed 50 years ago. If you cannot control the supply, what else can you do? And we have to take very concrete and I think bold steps to really help people to protect themselves. And that's why I talk about a three-pronged strategy. You know, obviously the first prong is harm reduction. You've got to do everything to, to keep these people alive. And harm reduction is include, it gives out, it, that includes giving out the, you know, the syringes, giving out Narcan. But Narcan is tricky because Narcan can only be used after the overdose has occurred. Mm-hmm. So it is too, the, the window is too small. And the third has to be a prevention strategy. And we have simply not used it. The treatment is, another, is a third prong, but treatment also is not standardized and people don't have as much access to it. So we have to, on a war footing, say that this has to be looked at because we have not taken advantage of the unique pharmacology of opioids. Of all the drugs of abuse, opioids enter the brain only through one door called the opiate receptor. If we know the pharmacology, why are we still struggling to help people? So knowing that it, it enters through this one receptor, how is that a useful thing to know? Okay, that, so you can do things. You can, actually, you can actually activate the receptor or you can completely block it or, or help, you can block the receptor. So we have, med, we have unique medications that will do that. They will partially block it, completely block it. We have to use uh, our, uh, our knowledge and a lot of courage to help people know what the options are. I can can jump in because you talked about Narcan, and a lot of people know what that is, but some people don't. (laughs) Basically, if you overdose on an opioid, you can get a nasal spray of Narcan, and it will bring you back to life. It's like a miracle drug. Percy is talking about a preventative form of Narcan, essentially, and it's an opioid blocker called naltrexone, also known as the Vivitrol shot. And we might get into this more later, but basically it makes it so you can't be affected by opioids at all if you've had the shot. Can't be affected, meaning I'm not going to get high from them. There's no point in me taking them at that point. Exactly. And that seems to be the goal. At that point, you're, you're not able to cut off the supply, but you're able to change the demand. Yeah, I, we'll talk more about it, but it's one f- tool in the tool belt to really help uh, fight the opioid crisis. Percy, just hearing about this, there's so many times that we talk about drug addiction, um, and it's so seldom that I hear people talk about this specific treatment that we can give. Is there a reason that this kind of flies under the radar and we all just wring our hands and say, people are dying of, of opioids, there's nothing it, we can do? It's a long story, but addiction is, is tricky. It's like asking people to stick to a diet when there is junk food everywhere. So asking them to stick to a, a diet 
that does not allow them to use opioids is not an easy task. Mm -hmm. So you have to create a grassroots organization really to, to, you know, to whip up a saying, I hate heroin, give out this thing, and incentivize people. Because right now, when the people who are using opioids, they have absolutely no incentive to get well. They're quite happy with the situation they are in. They are using drugs, they are small-time drug dealers, and they are, and drug addiction throws humans into a survival mode. Mm -hmm. That's the most dangerous form, to, to uh, dangerous state to be in. So we have to do a lot more. I am very concerned that we have not used the prevention methodology. So we, I'm on a mission to really help people to increase access to treatment and increase the third prong prevention. Because prevention is the most effective tool to help people when the opiates and the illegal opioids are everywhere. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly with our two guests. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. And now back to today's conversation. We're talking to Ben Westoff. He's the St. Louis-based author of Fentanyl, Inc., How Rogue Chemists Are Creating the Deadliest Wave of the Opioid Epidemic. Truly, really is now the deadliest wave. We're also joined by Percy Menzies. He's the founder and president of Assisted Recovery Centers of America. And Percy, you're serving up to 4,000 addicts in Missouri alone every month. Tell us how you got started in this and, and how this operation works. Started with one patient at a time. I started about 21 years ago because this was my calling. I worked for a joke with Evil Pharma. I was with, with pharmaceutical company that developed super heavy duty pain meds. And the, and the pharma division of DuPont also developed these two amazing medications. One is talked about all the time called naloxone or Narcan. The other was developed as a relapse prevention tool called naltrexone. Mm -hmm. And never in the history of medicine do we have two drugs at the opposite spectrum, methadone and naltrexone. Which one do you use? So there's a huge challenge, there's a huge battle that broke out. And I was in charge of naltrexone and I could not even give it away. And I said, why is it that we use naltrexone for the well-to-do people? If you are a physician, you're an airline pilot, you cannot fly a 747 on naltrexone. A physician cannot practice medicine on, on naltrexone, or on methadone, but they can use naltrexone. So this was my calling. I left the far, left pharma saying, I'm going to help people. And that's how I started. And was it hard to get physicians on board for what you were doing? Oh, yeah. Initially, it was very hard you know, because you know, what, is, what bothers me so much is this belief that addiction is an incurable disease. Nothing drives me so crazy because this is an addiction that enters through just one door. So it, it, on paper, it's a very easy treatment to, in a very easy treatment. It's a politics that is so insidious. If I can, that's why when I opened my clinic, I went to different groups. I went to judges. I went to professionals and said, send me the worst clients you have. And what we are doing, it's really is the pattern for a national program. And we are willing to share all that we are doing. Whatever we are doing is nothing is confidential, nothing is patented. They have access to all our protocols, all our, uh, you know, the, the treatment uh, 
programs. And this is medication-based treatment, basically Medi- yeah. helping people stop crave these yeah. drugs. Medication-based behavior, along with behavioral treatment, because they need a lot of help in terms of uh, that by the time they come to us, they have serious issues with uh, legal issues, marital issues, financial issues. All those have to be dealt with, especially providing psychiatric service. And that's what we do. So, Ben, you've covered a lot of different um, people trying to work in this treatment space, trying to get a handle on this opioid epidemic. Do you feel like what's going on here at Assisted Recovery Centers of America, is, is this unique in some ways? Well, I think Percy has really taken the lead about, uh, when it comes to reaching out to people on the street. And I've talked to a lot of the people who have gotten help from his clinic and great help. Hmm. I think the big problem right now is that we're not taking the opioid epidemic seriously like we are, say, COVID, right? So as you know, drug deaths have killed more people than COVID, right, since the year 2000. And yet when COVID dawned, it was an all-hands-on-deck situation. So much money, so much resources was poured into it. But when it comes to the, the drug, you know, fighting drug deaths, we're not reaching people on the ground. And that's what, what Percy uh, specializes in. And the advantage we have is that we're not waiting for some scientists to develop a vaccine, like when it came to COVID. We already have this, this drug Percy's talking about, naltrexone, which, which essentially functions as a vaccine. When you take the shot, you have 25 days when you literally can't be affected by opioids. Not only that, we have other medication-assisted treatment drugs like methadone and buprenorphine. So, so yeah, like he said, when people say there's nothing we can do about this, when they throw their hands up, it's crazy. We just need to devote the resources and the outreach to the people who need help. And Ben, in so many cases, we continue to think of this as a criminal justice issue as opposed to something where we're thinking of it as a medical issue. Any thoughts on why that is? It's the, the war on drugs that started in the Richard Nixon administration and famously blown up in the, the Reagan administration. And it, it still lingers. It's like the walking dead. It's like we can't get rid of it. You know, even under Trump, there was criminal justice reform, but it specifically excluded fentanyl, which, which makes me nuts. You know, for other drug crimes, people saw their sentences reduced. In a lot of cases, for fentanyl crimes, people are now having their punishments raised. And one thing we know is that when people go to prison, their drug problems tend not to get better. They tend to get, to get worse. And we should be providing drug treatment in prison, but particularly we shouldn't be sending you know, nonviolent drug criminals to prison in the first place. I want to go to the phone lines here. And a reminder, uh, you can call us if you want to join this conversation. We're at 314-382-8255. Again, that's 382-TALK. Uh, Kathy is calling from Olivet. Uh, Kathy, hi. You're on St. Louis on the Air. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Uh, what's your question? Yeah, I was wondering if experts knew if there's any progress on um, the ability of more prescribers to, or uh, practitioners to prescribe uh, Suboxone. And even maybe someday um, have it available, you know, behind the pharmacy counter like uh, like Sudafed is. Kathy, thank you for that question. Percy, I'm going to uh, swing this one to you first. Can you tell us what Suboxone does? Yes, Suboxone is a, a, the active ingredient is called buprenorphine. It's an opioid drug that's, that's very effective in helping patients. But again, being a scheduled drug, okay, it has to be written by a physician. 
And in the present situation, the federal government has really relaxed the rules on that. Okay? But physicians are reluctant to use it because they think they're, they're prescribing an opioid, so there is a, there's a fear element associated with that. Okay. Is this a drug where there's a potential for abuse? Yes, there's a potential for diverting it. So a big problem is that they're, they're selling it on the streets mm -hmm. to buy some heroin. So that's a big challenge where they don't stick to it. So the, the, when she said, will it become an over-the-counter, the answer is a firm no. It's okay. just not going to happen. We are talking about making naltrexone an over-the-counter product, but not not opioids. Okay. So that is something where it sounds like there's a good reason we don't want it to be over the counter, but there's ways that doctors could use this more effectively or more frequently. Yes. We also had a question Mickey called from Hannibal. He wanted to know if opioids can be designed so they can't get you high, but they could still be used to treat pain. Boy, that is a complicated question, and I imagine that's something that we'd want to talk to. There, there's, an, there's, a, there's a Nobel Prize waiting for that. If you can, <laughs> if you can discover that, you're, it's a surefire way to getting a Nobel Prize in chemistry. <laughs> well, Percy, the very idea that we could block um, where these opioids yeah. work in our, our pleasure centers, it seems like it's not beyond the realm that maybe decades from now, somebody will be able yeah. to get but the price of this. That's how they discovered naloxone. So this was the quest that how can you have a non-addicting drug out of opium, which is synonymous with evil, the opium. So when they discovered naloxone, there was complete skepticism. So give it a few weeks, it'll, become a, it'll be a street drug. It didn't happen. Hmm. And based on that, they say, oh, now, wait a minute, we can develop a long-acting naloxone that instead of lasting for 30 minutes, this can last for 24 hours, and that was naltrexone. So when naltrexone was introduced, it was seen as, a, as an existential threat by the existing treatment program that believed that the only way to treat addiction is opioid substitution. And I, that drives me crazy. There's more than one way to skin the cat. You cannot just offer OST, opioid substitution treatment, as the only viable treatment. So is some of the problem here, Percy, that people are being territorial about their own little stretch oh, of things? Yeah. Absolutely. So, Ben, some of the strategies that we're talking about here, we're talking about blocking um, the pleasure you'd get from these drugs. You also talked about something really interesting in your book, Fentanyl, Inc. There's a way that we could test at least some drugs to make sure they're not contaminated with fentanyl. Can you tell us a little bit about this and, and why people aren't doing this? They're, what known, they're what's known as fentanyl testing strips, and they're extremely cheap and easy to use. It's basically like a pregnancy test. So you take a solution of your drugs, mix it up, dip the fentanyl testing strip in there, and if there's one line, it doesn't mean you're pregnant, it means there's fentanyl in it. Two lines, there's no fentanyl. And so people, you know, they're not 100% effective, right? Like some of your, if you have a pill and you scrape a little bit off, that part might not have fentanyl in it, but another part of the pill might, for example. Mm. But it's a great way to start um, they have these kits for all sorts of other drugs, too. Like, I, I say that it's a really bad time to be a young person right now because I know when I was in my early 20s, you know, I, I may have experimented with drugs. My mother-in-law might be listening to this, so I, I won't say for sure. But, that you know, I could do so knowing I probably wasn't going to die. But for, for young people right now, any pill or any powder that you buy off the street could have fentanyl in it. Mm -hmm. And so I always recommend this company called The Bunk Police. And they have just all sorts of types of drug checking kits. You can test to see if it's real ecstasy, if it's real cocaine, heroin, you name it. And um, 
you really shouldn't take any of this stuff without checking it first. Mm. So you can't count on this 100% of the time, but if you're going to do drugs anyway, this is a, a decent step to take. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely recommended. I'm going to go back to the phone lines. Let's squeeze in one more call here. Peyton is calling from St. Louis. Uh, Peyton, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. Hi. How are you doing? Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, what did you want to share? So I just wanted to share about some of the claims that I've heard from uh um, opiate addicts and specifically fentanyl people that are addicted to fentanyl they say that sometimes it feels like the buprenorphine morphine I, I think I'm pronouncing it right You're close enough, yeah. things like that they say that sometimes they think that their addiction is too strong and the fentanyl is too strong that when they went into rehab and been prescribed it it doesn't work like it does with other people that use just heroin or other opiates Hmm. Percy, I'd Not. be curious to, to hear your response to that. They say that, you know, if you, th- if you use the right dose of buprenorphine, you can help them. So, unfortunately, there are very few clinics that really have a good detox protocol. Because most of the time, the detox is what, here's a bed and here's a blanket, curl up in a fetal position. That is just inhumane to do that. At our clinic, you know, we have some very, very heavy-duty patients that come here. And our medical director, Dr. Fred Rotnick, has written excellent protocols that it is very much customized to the need of the patient. If they have been using fentanyl for a while, we'll give them appropriate comfort meds a larger dose of buprenorphine, and we can help these So patients. this may be a dosage problem that, that Peyton's friends yes. are experiencing. In- inadequate detox. Okay. Well, that's good to know. That's something that could be solved if the provider knows what they're doing. I know that can be hard for people to, to find somebody to treat them in a way that can actually help them. Percy, one other thing that you've talked about that I want to make sure that we briefly touch on today, and that is you have ideas about giving people cash incentives to get treatment. How would that work? Oh, that is one of the most effective ways to help people. Because we, you know, many of these people, we have to make treatment attractive. Giving them a small cash incentive, as, as little as $1 a day, maybe a $25 gift card, can, can work miracles. Gets yes. them in that door. Absolutely, because they feel rewarded. They're not looking at the value of the cash, but just the fact that somebody's appreciating what they are doing. And I am just passionate about that, you know, because giving them a small amount of, of cash, it's a power, powerful. We do it for our children. We do it for all the clinical studies. You know, why are clinical studies so effective? Because we, we actually incentivize, we give them cash for coming to the clinic and so on. Why not do it when you're fighting in the trenches? And I would, I would plead of our, our agents, of our governments to please come up with that. Don't have this mindset, these are, these are drug addicts, giving them money is making things worse. No, they are going to get well. I don't think everyone always thinks about it in a holistic way because you're not just helping the people who are addicted to drugs. It's societal improvements are bound to come. You know, there's people often have to rob and steal and do prostitution to pay for their drugs. And so if people don't have that incentive, um, all of society is going to benefit. Well, I appreciate the note of hope you guys have both brought today. It seems like there are things we can be doing about this problem that feels so deadly and intractable. And I appreciate you both sharing your knowledge. I feel like this is something we need to continue to explore as a society and also as a radio show. So Ben Westoff, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Sarah. And Ben is the author of Fentanyl, Inc. And also Percy Menzies, founder and president of Assisted Recovery Centers of America. Thank you. Thank you.
This episode was produced by Jane Mather Glass, with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Doerr and production assistance by Jane. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.